You are now listening to This and That, a podcast collaboration about some of everything that's anything with your hosts, David and Brenda. Now, let's get to talking about this and that. It's that time again. Time for another edition of our ever-increasingly popular podcast, This and That. This is Brenda, better known as Ms. Brenbren, and... This is David, a.k.a. Dr. David, a.k.a. The Professor. And we are coming to you from Podcast Land Studio with edition number 32 of This and That. Absolutely. And it is October 26, 2019. Very dreary day here outside of Podcast Land Studio. Hopefully where you are. No, 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 no. It's not dreary. It's a beautiful day. Just because it's overcast and rainy outside doesn't mean it's dreary. Okay. The weather is dreary. The day is awesome, given that we're above ground and kicking. Exactly. And we're recording another edition of This and That for those listeners that just keep coming back for more and more. Can't get better than that. Well, it, it could get better than that, All right. of course. You know. Well, maybe somebody, somebody could send a us a million dollars. <laughs> but I'm not holding my breath on that one. So. Um, so I'm not holding my breath on that one. But anyway... Another great day, and um, thank you to all who keep coming back to listen to what we have to say. Because we talk about everything that's anything. That is our motto, and we have an eclectic podcast to prove it. And it's also free. Yes, it's been free since day one. It's still free, and knock on wood, it will continue to be free. And thanks all of you who are out there supporting and listening across this globe on five continents. Now, since you said knock on wood, are you going to knock on your head? No, my head still is not made of wood. Okay. Just thought I'd check. Anyway, shout out to, again, all of our listeners, including those in the following U.S. locations. Brooklyn, New York. Washington, D.C. Inglewood, Colorado. And Fort Bragg, California. Thought now, I was going to say North Carolina, probably. Yeah, I thought you were going to no, go there, but you trick. didn't. That was a trick. That was a trick, and hopefully folks were listening. Um, and let's go to those listeners overseas. Uh, thank you to them as well. And so we're going to give a shout-out to Oldbury, United Kingdom. Santa Comba in Spain. Cape Town, South Africa. And Istanbul, Turkey. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody, everywhere. And um, we also want to give a shout out to the U.S. military men and women for listening in, where whether you're located here in the U.S. or internationally. Thank you for your service. Absolutely, and shout out to their uh, civilian dependence and civilian support systems as well. Also, a shout out to all first responders in the U.S., fire, 
police, EMS, and so on. We thank you also for your service. Now, David, where can people listen to our free podcasts? They can find the podcast wherever they listen to all other podcasts. We're available just about everywhere, including our home base of SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play Music, TuneIn, and on and on and on. Lots of different locations. And we're also available through Alexa voice-assisted devices, through a myriad of skills, including the default ones. And as we said earlier, we are available everywhere, anytime, meaning on demand. So you pick the time, you pick the place, and you just kick back and listen to what we have talked about. That's correct. And also, if life intrudes, just hit pause, come back, hear the rest of the podcast. Exactly. If for some reason you need to uh, send us an email, want to give us a shout out, how can people reach us? They can reach us through the show's email address. That's this and that at aboutgreatercincinnati.com. That's this, the letter N, that, all nine characters together at sign aboutgreatercincinnati.com. And we have also an email distribution list that listeners can sign up for and receive reminders when a new podcast is available. Now, what exciting things are we going to talk about today? Because we have on tap, and no, we're not drinking, so not that kind of tap. But we have on the deck another exciting episode of our um, eclectic podcast. This is Mixed Metaphor Day. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> anyway, um, we have the, the latest installment of Living Your Passion. We interview via phone. Uh, um, I consider him a living legend. He may not consider himself that, although he is one. That is Larry Poncho Brown. And yeah, I consider him... A living artistic legend. Yes, he is a, a very well-known, world-renowned artist of uh, African-American art. has been around, uh, although he doesn't look it, over 40-plus years. And you'll find out more about him and his uh, passion for art and the like in the interview. There is a lot to be discussed, so let's not hold this up any longer. Are you ready? Of course. Okay. Then on and upward with edition 32 of our eclectic podcast, This and That. You are now listening to This and That with David and Brenda. We do interviews with individuals about living their passion. And they are willing to talk with us about what it is that they'd love to do, and how basically it's primarily what they're good at and what they are involved in. We have on the phone with us the world-renowned African-American artist, Larry Poncho Brown, and he's going to talk talk with us about living his passion. Welcome to Listen That Podcast, Poncho. Well, thank you both. Now, Larry is, um, like I said, 
joining us via phone here in the podcast land studio. And why don't we get started with Larry, who is Larry Poncho Brown? Uh, well, I wish you guys could have defined that so I wouldn't have to define myself, but Larry <laughs> Poncho Brown has been a professional artist for 40 years. Um, I uh, am a second-generation artist. I am the son of a teenage parent that gave up his dream of doing art um, to take care of his family. So I picked up the baton and decided to follow in footsteps that my dad couldn't. Now, um, did you say 40 years? Yes, I did, 40 years. So does that mean you came out uh, with a paintbrush and you know, born at birth with that? <laughs> that, that that's always a common question. <laughs> well, what I will say is that I was involved in vocational education in Baltimore City. So I got my first job at 14 and my first business was started when I was 17. Now, what kind of art do you create? Uh, you know, art is art. I create all kinds of art. My background is as a graphic designer. I, uh, like I said, I attended uh, Carver Vocational Technical High School in Baltimore where I learned how to do commercial art, which really entailed, uh, my specialty area was lettering. So in my early career, I was a sign painter, sign writer. I did uh, uh, billboards, I did uh, trucks, windows, all kinds of commercial applications. Uh, I later went to the Maryland Institute College of Art where I studied uh, graphic design and photography, uh, where I started to move into doing graphics and doing uh, some illustrative work, but didn't like any of that. <laughs> so ultimately, my passion was always drawing and painting. I was doing that in the closet all the way through college. College folks didn't even know I could paint when I graduated. And uh, I just got faced with this opportunity to do my art, and I just left the graphics behind. Now, at the time, how exactly did you kind of, quote-unquote, break into the business of art versus, you know, graphic design, signs, and the like, where most folks with who were artists made a living? Well, you know, following the commercial track, making a living was never a, a, a challenge. What happens is when we talk about art, uh, we are so miseducated about the life of an artist, stereotype of artists. So we think that all artists are, but commercial artists generally don't. So I came from an entrepreneurial environment where, you know, I knew how to sell myself. I knew how to groom clients. I, I, I would walk up to a store and I would say, hey, I can't read your sign, but I know a guy that can come and do that tomorrow. And they would say, well, send them by. And I would show up with my lettering brushes and knock the job out. That's, I was used to selling myself uh, at a very, very early age. So it made it a little easier for me to make the transition into selling art because I came through a time where, you know, um, African-American artists didn't have a lot of outlets. But in the, in the 80s, there was this huge explosion um, and this phenomenon known as the Cosby Show era where all of a sudden uh, African-American artists were featured on the set. It just so happens that technology was in alignment with that. So it was accessible. People could find it. People imitated what they saw. And before you knew it, there would be a huge explosion of African-American art happening from 1985 to 2005, which is known as the Golden Age of African-American Artists. called that because so many African-American artists, number one, had opportunity. Uh, two, they had uh, so many different aspects of the art business they could participate in. Three, they had all kinds of venues they could uh, get involved in. 
40 was a distribution network that was set up. And I can go to 5, 6, 7, and 8, but just to give you an idea of how broad that opportunity was. Now, you said, uh, you talked about um, African-American art showing up on uh, TV shows like The Cosby Show back in the 80s. What, was any of your artwork on any shows? Yes. Uh, during that period of time, I had stuff on, uh, predominantly on, um, um, uh, well, I had a couple of vignettes of stuff on The Cosby Show, um, but it was a host of black shows that came out with it. A Fresh Friend, you know, Living Single. It was a whole bunch of shows where works uh, were prominently placed on the set. So I was fortunate enough to have uh, a couple of pieces on a couple of shows during that period of time. And even to this date, there are plenty of, sh of shows and movies now. Uh, it's commonplace for shows to call artists now to uh, supply work for a set because that was all really kicked off. I'm really back from as far back as the... Uh, um, the good times uh, uh, that God was on TV. Oh, yeah, I yeah. remember that. Exactly. And so my work was prominently featured on A Different World for like two seasons. I had two Egyptian Queens pieces that was in uh, Kadeen Hardison's room for two whole seasons. So here you got this college show, and then in Sunny and them's room, I had Black is Black, is another, probably my most popular piece hanging in their room. So those pieces became kind of college campus pieces for a long time during the 80s. So, I mean, it, it helped really give visibility uh, to art in a way that was never really seen before. Because when you talk about good times, the work wasn't readily accessible. I mean, despite uh, uh, Ernie Barnes' work being shown every week, right. you know, you couldn't go to the mall and find it. You couldn't go to a frame shop and find it. It wasn't accessible because color printing really hadn't uh, evolved to the point of affordability. <laughs> right. You know, but by the time... The Cosby Show era happened, and we had a major, maybe one or two major revolutions in color printing, and it made color printing affordable. So all of a sudden, everybody in the mama was printing pieces. And so uh, that the good side of that is that it made it readily accessible. But later on, the problem became that this, it created a level of saturation. Now, now during the, 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 the golden age, so-called golden age, um, you you hit a, a high and a low. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Essentially, uh, you, you got wiped out in, in a fire. Is that correct? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, everybody who's um, on a path to, <laughs> to another destination is going to go through ebbs and flows. I went through mine in 1995 when I lost my studio. And uh, it was worst-case scenario. A man and a half was lost in that fire, minimum uh, insurance. It was just the worst-case scenario. As a matter of fact, 1995, from 1985 to 95, uh, my work had really rose to a level of prominence where I was just beginning to see a real total payout of the amount of money that had been invested uh, from that period of time. And so if you can imagine at the height of your popularity, getting hit with something like this, it was a bit of a challenge. But I can say that it was a blessing on two fronts. The first front was that I didn't realize um, how unified artists were. You know, you always hear about artists like the individuals. They don't look out for each other, X, Y, Z. I can never say that. That first-year artist took care of me. I mean, they must have donated upwards of $60,000, $70,000 to me that year. Oh, you know, wow. I had originals. I had my customers sending me originals and prints. They were sending them back. I had distributors that bought stuff for me who were sending the stuff back for me to get back on my feet. Oh, you're you know, it was right? just a, it was, it was a magical thing 
for me to experience at that age, because I was in my 30s when it happened. So it was like, man, I, 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 it, it also showed me on the second front that, you know, having a good reputation is, can, can be helpful at those kind of times. Because I had always uh, lended myself to my community. I was always very uh, proactive. I was an artist advocate. I mentored. So all of that really came back to support me during that period. So, uh, but as I say that, you know, it took me three years because of the momentum of the art business to kind of get myself back into some sort of pace to, to kind of reclaim the place that I was in. But I never did recover from the loss. Now, you're coming back during that time. Um, I know you said that was um, kind of difficult. Now, is that where you were having some... Um, what they would consider mental health challenges? Or was it just that you were trying to figure out what, get your art inspiration back? Well, my art inspiration never went anywhere. (laughs) And I never went anywhere. During this period of time, I probably was down for about a year. And that was emotional. When you go through something traumatic, it takes you a while to reset. And art is no different than anything else. I had to reset from that loss. Um... Uh, I had a support system, but, you know, I, I, I ran into a depression during that period of time. And, then, and so you get challenged with all types of things trying to do your passion. It's not always roses and accolades. Sometimes you got to go through those things to really understand where you fit, uh, to understand uh, your place in the world. And so this situation did exactly that, and it matured me out real quick to go through that in my early 30s and to really uh, try to... Uh, uh, replot how I was going to regain my momentum, because that's all it really was. Never like a part of it. You know, some people saw me inside a row with a white beard. <laughs> it was like I had to, I was, I was knocked down from a nice, comfortable job to having to build a momentum back up to that job. And believe me, those first three years of trying to get back in place was, uh, it was grueling. I mean, I didn't have time to devote to family, my kids, uh, and a lot of things, that tunnel vision to get back into that momentum. But I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. It, it taught me a lot about myself, my resiliency. It also taught me that the, the collectors that I had were very, very loyal. Speaking of the, the tunnel vision and all, you, you have a, a bit of a, of a reputation in the art world that when you're working on a project, you get very focused or you'd like to. Did that stem out of your comeback or were you always that way? No, I was always that way, man. I, I, again, I came from a vocational education, and basically these were hustlers. These folks knew how to hustle whatever trade was out there. If it was cosmetology, it, they just, it was just a hustler's edge to doing what you did. So I was always driven. I was always motivated. I was always hyped to do it. Uh, and I think that kind of helped me because um, that's a, another part of my creativity that a lot of artists don't have. You know, some, as artists, you have to be self-motivated. And so sometimes it's very, very difficult to be in a position to push yourself. But I learned from my peers. I mean, I had people like Charles Biz, uh, Paul Goodnight, Annie Lee, and a host of other artists that were 15 to 20 years older than me who embraced me as one of their, their peers. And so I had a whole measuring stick of people to look at to define what to do, what not to do, a code of conduct. Uh, and it just helped me out. I just came along at a time where the support was uh, readily available. Right, and you named some big names in the art world. Uh, the Charles Bibbs, the Annie Lee, Paul Goodnight. 
Um, are those individuals that you have collaborated with or at some point as part of your comeback? Uh, well, we keep getting on comeback, and I, I, I keep trying to reference it. It really wasn't a comeback. Okay. It was a rebuild. Comeback is when you go through something, and then uh, later on, 10 years, 5 years down the road, you, you, you try to regain your momentum. Yeah. No, man, uh, my friends came in and swooped around me right when it happened. All the parts that I had to get past, the only comeback for me was I had never had my spirit broken before. So, in so the... I just had to get my head. Mine was more emotional than anything else. So, so the in... artists and the names, the names you said, these, these names, these are my friends. These are my, these are my peers. I didn't look at them as what most people see them as. These people were calling me and checking up on me like they were, I was their little brother. All right. In the words of LL Cool J, don't call it a comeback. It is a rebuild. Well, you were going well, through I mean, a rebuild. Everybody, everybody has, a, a society has phrases for people that go through uh, transition. And so I understand why you say comeback. But I, 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 I would call it a comeback. Because, right. So. Uh, and while that was happening, my work was still moving like gangbusters. It wasn't like there was even a lull in the work that was being created. I had put so much work into the industry that that work floated me through that year, me rebuilding my, my, my spiritual self. It wasn't like I had to go back to the drawing board and try to catch up with anything. It was almost in the industry like it was seamless. People knew that it happened to me. But they still were, and, and, that, and to this day, most artists look at me like a god because they don't know how I made it through that period. <laughs> so, um, since your first piece, how many pieces of art have you created over the years? I don't, I don't think artists can really truly count that. I, I can tell you that I have over 200 pieces in the front market. And outside of that, I have thousands and thousands and thousands of works. I'm always working. I've been working steadily since I was 8, 10, 12 years old, and I'm almost 60 now. Oh, you're not 60, you're 40. I'm almost 60. <laughs> you must not be doing the math. You do. You, I said 40 years, ma'am. I gave you, I gave you the, the point where I started now. Well, well, it is a running, it is a running joke it, in our podcast. Y'all looking, looking at all those uh, photo retouch uh, photographs online. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are looking at you know, the, you know, the retouch stuff. You know, black don't crack on the outside, retouch on the inside. That's, that's <laughs> true. Uh, that, that's a good line. I like that. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back with more with Larry Poncho Brown. this and that. We are talking with Larry Poncho Brown, an African-American artist who is living his passion. What, what are some of the projects you're working on right now? 
Well, you know, I, I, mentorship is still big for me, but I think this year coming in, I'm moving away from it. I started, I've dedicated 35 years to speaking to schools, uplifting students, working with artists on every kind of level. Uh, I have a couple of big projects, which I call legacy projects, uh, that I'm working on right now. One is the, the documentary of, of the Golden Age of African American Art Outside, this, this serious explosion of art and activity that happened between 1985 and 2005. Because it was free social networking and it was because it was free uh, internet, but there was really uh, no way to document this thing. It happened so fast, and so much money was being made, and the train was moving so fast that we really had no, no, no documentation of the whole movement. And so, I, I'm happy after having conversation with several friends, half of the friends, a couple of friends I named, I lost, like my friend Annie Lee and other folks. We had all had conversations, man, I wish somebody had taken the time to document what we were doing. Because you've got to remember, this movement was a commercial movement. Uh, academia did not endorse this movement. When I say academia, okay, you've got to find artists, the, um, you know, the Romare Beardens, the Jacob Lawrences, but that's another whole side of the business that was not a part of the movement I was uh, participating in. I was participating in the commercial end of this business. And so often, academia was the ones that documented the efforts of artists in certain, uh, coming from a certain realm. In the commercial market, because it was so self-contained, uh, we were doing our own PR. We, man, artists, black artists became rock stars for the first time in age. That had never happened before. I mean, it happened with Ernie Barnes when he was doing Good Times, but because he, no, he was a pretty much an unknown. He was a former NFL football player. And nobody really knew. The masses of people didn't know who Ernie Barnes was. They knew when the show was over who he was. Right. So, you know, it's just so many different facets to this, this thing, this movement. But that, that period was uh, uh, very important because it was the largest art appreciation class that was ever held. <laughs> you know, black folks were so starving for their culture that the, the Huxtables gave them a pathway to really reaching out and grabbing their culture. And I'm telling you, man, you're talking about millions and millions of people that went into this market and put uh, uh, art into their home. Right. You're talking about back in the 80s, man, if you asked 10 people who had art, you know, nine of them would say no. You know, you're talking about by the time 2000 came around, when you're asked that same question, one person would say no. Right. You know, but mysteriously, here we are in 2019, and it's starting to move backwards again. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so... They, they say that you know, but, Go ahead. No, times change, things evolve, things even flow. Right, but do you think there could ever be, they say history repeats or, or, or rhymes, that there could be a, a kind of second golden age of African-American art sometime in the future? I, I think there's one golden age, like there was one Harlem Renaissance. Mm. I see. The Harlem okay. Renaissance did what it did. You had people that left the, the, the southern migration from the south, they went up north with opportunities to change the perspective of black people, and, and, and he used the art to make this huge explosion in 19, from 1920 to 1930. But the thing that people don't often discuss is that the, um, the Great Depression was going on at the exact same time. So you're talking about people galvanizing the art at a time when the country was probably at the worst state it's ever been in history. So when you look at these explosions, like what happened around the time of the Cosby Show era and the Good Times era, it's a real positive period because you're talking about media fusing to the arts. When media and art fuse together, it's a dynamo. You cannot touch it. It, it, it provides 
uh, a level of uh, of, uh, validation that you just can't get anywhere else. Now, how can people um, see the documentary? Well, we're at the final stages of shooting. Um, We're going to be wrapping up our shooting in December. We've done like 32 interviews, and the interviews we've done are uh, some of the top artists in the country, uh, the people who were the publishers, some of the distributors, some of the galleries came to that time, uh, some of the, 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 uh, the national shows and venues that were available during that time. And these people are now in their 70s, so it was nice to have a dialogue where they could finally articulate what we did between 1985 and 2005. And the only reason why the 2005 deadline is there is because right after that, they had the huge economy crash. We started off with 9-11. And then by the time the economy crash happened in 2008, uh, this movement pretty much was, it came to a standstill. You talked about 3,000 galleries that were selling African-American art that began to close uh, in droves. That, that's a lot. That, that well, I mean, when you say economy, you know, this was, this was a, you know, art is one of those things that's for a disposable income. And when you start to get, hit the middle of America, with what the economy did at that time. You talk about the housing market, the banking market, the, the car industry. You talk about all of these things about to implode at one time. And so art becomes like, oh, well, <laughs> well, we got to focus on bread and butter. We can't focus on what's going on. And so that was a seismic shift that really abruptly ended the golden age of African-American art. Now, it's different now. The same artists that were at top of the game during that period of time are still viable. They've continued to work. They've continued to build following. It's just a different world now than it's ever been. Now, as, as part of that different world, you you gave us a quick synopsis of how you how you got into the um, the the industry and all. What what's your advice for young folks out there today that might want to get into the the art world beyond you know com- commercial signage, et cetera? I mean, my advice to any artist is work, 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 because nobody wants to work anymore. Um, it, 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 social networking is one of the most powerful things to change everything because, you know, before people, like, artists were well hit. You know, you knew they were there and, and felt like they were special, but now since social networking, you got everybody and, and whoever showing. You want to see the best of art? Look on Facebook and Instagram. You want to see the worst of art? Look on Facebook and Instagram. It's across the board. So artists now have a venue where they never, a global venue. Just imagine that term, a global venue. They never had that before. So I would just tell artists be uh, virtual active, continue to do good work, continue to share it with other people uh, because it's a different world now. You can go online, put up a website, put up some stuff in a couple of different places, and you have access to build a following just like we did in the 80s. That whole thing was done without social networking. This was all uh, foot to the pavement, uh, people working together, a network that was built that made sustain that period. Now it's like we got this network that reaches all the way around the globe, and if you can figure out how to use it, um, you should never have a problem as a creator. And you are really great about sharing um, and being a mentor to others. So um, tell folks, how could they find your work or learn more about you? Well, I mean, I do, I spend a lot of, remember I told you my background was graphic design. That means all of my social networking pages, my Instagram, my ads, all that stuff is created by me. <laughs> so, 
I'm able to be a one-man force when it comes to promoting. And I've taken the time to learn how promotion works. So um, you can find me anywhere on Instagram, Twitter, just under the handle of The Art of Poncho. Um, you can find me on Wikipedia. <laughs> that has a little bit of background about my history. I'm not hard to find. Larry Poncho Brown. And um, I've, I've worked very, very hard to utilize uh, what we have available to us today to help us promote whatever we're doing. So while we're talking about my passion, this goes into any passion you have. The same network I'm using this to keep my uh, followers engaged is the same. Uh, it's available to everybody to utilize. And speaking of, um, of, of your passion for the world of art, do you have a passion for baseball? No. So you don't care anything about what the Nationals are doing right now. But he's in Baltimore. I uh, watch the Nationals. Here? But, you know, when I, I went course. through a big thing in, in, uh, in the 90s where I was so fed up of watching athletes galloping down and jumping as high as they can jump, but all the coaches were still white and all the other backdrops were still white. So I still have a little bit of militancy when it comes to following sports. Okay. Uh, it's affected me to the point where I don't follow anything. But championship time... I cheer for whoever's winning, you know. <laughs> I'm that guy. I'm that guy that if the Ravens are winning back at home, I'm, I'm with them. Uh, but other than that, no, I, I, I'm not consumed with it. I have, my passion consumes me. Gotcha. So that's where I spend my time. That's where I learn the most. That's where I meet the most people. And I'm, I'm, I'm more engaged in trying to continue to connect with my collectors and my followers than I am. Uh, what these athletes are doing because they have their own slice of the world and artists are trying to develop theirs too. Yeah. Now, are you going to be doing um, any more uh, family collaborations with others in your family that do uh, that are into the world of art? Uh, well, we just did one recently with my son and his mother. Me and his mother attended Micah together. Uh, and at one point, my father was part of that, uh, that foursome. He passed away in 2011. This is the first time we did at all of the family shows since my dad passed. So we showed uh, new works by the three of us and uh, older works by my father. So I'm, one of many different things that I try to do, I try to try to do, I, I do collaborations with a lot of artists. Uh, particularly Charles, this is probably my best part. We do all types of art-related projects, whether it be uh, artist quarantines where we get a group of artists and lock them away for a month and have to create, and then we do a... a, a some sort of, uh, uh, of, of an exhibition and sale or something after it's over and give uh, money to different entities. Uh, it's just so many things to do. And despite all the crazy stuff the Orange Man is doing in D.C., there is more opportunity for artists than ever before. And so I hope that folks, as they listen to this, will understand that we don't get caught up in the distractionary stuff that's happening right now. The playing field is wide open for Anybody who's doing art, music, dance, whatever. You just got to galvanize a couple people, partner with some good people, and put your dreams into action. Now, that's, that's great advice. Yes, and uh, speaking of advice, given all that you've um, done and seen, do you have, if you could go back in time, what would you tell your 10-year-old self? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I would tell my 10-year-old self, don't be scared of white folks. Because I went into college 
Uh, very militant, but I was afraid of all the things I had been told white folks would do, wouldn't do, wouldn't let me do. I had a, a teacher at school who, when I first walked into class, told me white folks would never let me do the kind of art I wanted to do. And then when I got to college, I went to an all-white college where at the minority students was 3% at the Maryland Institute College of Art at that time. That you were assured that every class I went to, I may have been the only black person in those classes. So, you know, just getting past that, if I, I just wish that, you know, another thing that I would have told my 10-year-old self was that nobody along the way explained to me that art was a, spir a spiritual expression. They taught me as if art was something that it was like a light switch. You can turn it on, you can turn it off. You had some choice. But nobody said, hey, this is an innate part of your personality. And then there's a, a certain amount of uh, discipline that you have to use to govern that. And that, that, if somebody told me that, I probably would be well ahead of where I am now. But uh, that's all. I, the uh, two big pieces of advice I would have given my ten-year-old self. Okay, that that second answer brings up something I I heard someone say about you. Something about um, you consider art to be. There's a saying, "Art is a mistress," but you consider it to be more than that. Uh, people often ask me about art being a mistress, and I always dispel that whole myth. That makes no sense at all. I, and I, but I've had experienced people, especially in my, my personal relationship, who, uh, because of my dedication, my, my attention span, my focus, they often compete against uh, my passion. And that's like a losing battle. It, there, there is no mistress. This is, a, this is a spiritual part of me. So when you compete against that, you're actually competing against me in a way that you probably will never recover from. Well, one thing is for sure, I will not be competing against <laughs> you in the world of art. Well, you know, the funny I, thing I about art is that I don't have an art, uh, artistic talent when it comes to canvas in my body. Well, you know, everybody's got to give some way. And while we're on the subject of competition, trust me when I say that it's so very limited. The artists that I deal with in this business, have been some of the kindest, non-competitive people that I have ever met in my life. It was the one thing I did not expect as I embarked in this journey. I thought it would be nothing but competition. And don't get me wrong, there has been some times where competition has come up. But, you know, the friendships and the relationships that have developed, because art is a real relationship-based business, um, it surpasses any amount of competition that could have existed. That is really great to hear. That's what you would give advice to your 10-year-old self, what advice would you give to, um, again, someone else uh, in junior high thinking about art? Uh, i got to be honest with you. When my son turned 18, I really stopped caring about kids a little bit. <laughs> and I, I know that sounds very, very harsh. you got to remember, I dedicated 35 years of spending time with children, but I, I'm frustrated because of a couple of things. Uh, the, the one thing is that parents are not as connected to their children as they used to be, especially now when it comes to passions or talents. Uh, I think that that part has, has gotten a little jaded. The other side of it is a disciplinary issue. So you got so many kids now, when you go to a class, they're, they're doing 5,000 different things. They're distracted by phones. They have no respect for adults. I mean, there's some things that I didn't have to contend with when I was first mentoring my first 25 to 30 years. This last 10 years has been like, wow, how do teachers do it? And my father was a teacher for 33 years. So 
I could never figure it out. So what I've done instead of doing that is I've shifted my attention to HBCUs, colleges, and dealing with uh, college-level students. Because, you know, when you take art out of the classes, you cause a big disruption. And when they took art out of classes, music out of classes, physical education out of classes, you're talking about 25 years that I'm doing that in communities that look like ours. We are now witnessing this, this generation of kids that are culturally deprived. And, and, I, and it's unfortunate, you know, they did it with the auspices of really helping kids stay uh, technically uh, uh, connected. They want us to go into this technical age and learn how to embrace the computer and compete with people on a global scale. But what they did was instead of incorporating the arts with it, they did an either or uh, 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 kind of a decision, which mm -hmm. has directly affected our children. Yeah, and that it has. And it should not have been an either or, but a how does it work together? Well, the bottom line is that we participate in it and we're part of the problem. We let them do it. <laughs> right. You know, and then we're not really helping. If you got a kid that's drawing at home, you're not buying him paper and crayons like my parents did to make sure he's got enough paper and crayons that that could never become an issue. We'll go out and spend $500 on some kind of digital gaming system when a pack of paper costs less than all of that and lasts longer. So our sensibilities change with the media, the phone, television, and all these distractions that we have, because when I was coming through, we didn't have that many distractions. Right. Easier to focus on a talent or a passion or echo or YZ. Now, it's fashionable with everyone who's trying to find out who they are and all these groups trying to get their rights for people to say, hey, I want to be who I am. But it's backwards if you don't have anything nurturing in between. <laughs> I got kids now that are going to art school who may not have had it in high school. That's crazy. Wow, that hadn't even They're going to fail. That. They're going to drop out and they're going to fail. I see it mm -hmm. happening all the time. I speak at colleges all over the country. I see this thing happening. And it's, and it's really a shame because it affects African-American students and, and brown and, and black people more than it affects white folks. And I, I, I get so pissed off with seeing it happening over and over again and generationally. So but what, what can we do time, to change that? I don't know if you can do anything to change it. I think that at some point, one thing is not going to change is art is going to always be around. <laughs> it's going to afford to hear whether it's getting attention or not getting attention. Man, I'm looking at some artists now who are doing some great work because they're able to look at their phones and see what's happening in the world art-wise. Yeah, when I was doing my art back then, I didn't have anywhere to go unless I went to the library to see what was happening around me. Right. Now these kids can tap in and see myself and other artists doing really wonderful stuff. So yeah. it's just a discipline piece that's missing. Um, but we got to continue creating opportunity. And that's the thing that my father lacked when he was getting ready to embark on his career, is there was no opportunity in the 50s and 60s. For me... It was lack of opportunities until this explosion happened, and then all of a sudden I had more opportunities that I could participate in. So that's still available to kids today. You know, they're doing a lot of socially conscious stuff. So where we were doing pretty pictures back during the Golden Age of Aspenberg art because black folks were seeking that. Man, kids are doing stuff now on police brutality. It may never get hung on the wall, but the work is powerful. So who are some of the, the young and upcoming artists that 
that you would recommend people be on the lookout for? I, I wouldn't even give you a list because it would, it would, it would, it would confuse people. It's, it's just, we don't have blinders on. We, we mentally do. But if you, if you want to seek out art, ask me, when was the last time I went to a museum? When, did, when was the last time I went to a neighborhood gallery? When was the last time a flyer came into your email box that was an art show and you either went or didn't go? So it's about participation at this point, you know, because it's still happening. Things are still happening. We're just so jaded, man. We don't participate in anything anymore. We think we see everything that's happening in the snapshot of, of our iPhone 20. <laughs> yeah. And that's, it's, it's, it's more to this world than that. you gotta get, you got to go in your neighborhood again. Because there's good work going on. There's still great dance companies going. The spoken word is going through an explosion. Writing is going through an explosion. Hollywood is going through a bit of a cultural explosion. You know, but we're so distracted, we don't know which, what to do. And guess what? When well, you don't know what to do, what are you doing? What's Nothing. Happened? And that is a big detriment to oneself doing nothing. No, it's a big detriment to culture. This conversation is really about culture. And it's about how we participate in culture. You know, and sometimes we get jaded. We're jaded because, see, I, I come from the generation of we shall overcome. And now we've had our first black president. Nothing excites us anymore. You know, we, we have to go through a rebuilding of what's important. We're actually experiencing a bit of ethnocide right now because of technology, media, and art, and all these things just clashing against each other. And what's happening is that culturally we're being deprived, and we're not seeking culture like we were 25 years ago. We've seen so much now that we're almost like zombies. We have these technological advances, but we're not fueled really by anything. Well, now let let them, let us see uh, on our iPhone twenty uh, some poor kid getting shot by the police. We're pissed off and we're sharing it to twenty thousand people. Why are you sharing that? You're not sharing the little girl that's at the dance recital. And if you do, it's not at the same rate. Right. I was going to say exactly. you might be sharing it, but, but, but you're not sharing it. Yeah, but not at the same not the rate. Not with the world. Exactly. You know, people, if, if somebody sends me a, another black man getting killed by the police, I erase him immediately. He could be my mother. Because I don't want to see that anymore. I've seen enough of it, and Lord knows I've been stopped long enough to know and had to explain to my almost 30-year-old son different codes of conduct to survive situations like that. I've lost friends to that. You know, so my thing is that we are so busy trying to, to, to perpetuate the negatives that we don't talk about the positive anymore. Like right now in this conversation, what can we do? What can we do? Well, guess what? It's happening right now. The question is, are you sensitized enough to see it, feel it, and participate in it? And most of us aren't. Yep. But we're hoping that because we're having this conversation, many of our listeners are going to share about our conversation with you, with their circle, and this just keeps exploding in terms of people getting the message. Exactly. Go out to the gallery, recital, and so on. But I believe that these things are necessary. But you got to remember, there's a certain mental person, uh, uh, there's a certain demographic 
of people that listen to podcasts. Right. So we keep galvanizing these groups of people who are kind of already sensitized when our job is really for folks that aren't. You know, so conversations with people who are aware can still end nowhere because that's what it becomes, a conversation. Everybody wants to meet and have a conversation. We're going through this, this zone right now of, of what they call um, um, diversity and inclusion. It's a big movement that's been happening in the last 20 years. So we went from black folks trying to find, get our own, uh, the civil rights movement, uh, segregation, all that, to now this thing called diversity and inclusion. So first stage of it was, okay, we'll group all the people of color together. So now, you know, you got your red, your black, your brown, your, your green. <laughs> They're in one category. And for a while, people, white folks were able to talk about race that movement. But then somebody came along and said, well, why don't we put LGBTQ in that same group? So right now, black have a, a, a tone anymore. And guess what? In the diversity and inclusion and equity movement, guess what's at the bottom of the totem pole again? Black folks. So we got all these movements. You know, the average uh, dog has more rights than the average young black male. You go out and kick a dog in the ribs right now. The yeah, cops yeah. lock you up. Deal. That's true. They will lock you up like you killed somebody. That's, that is true. That so is all true. about, we just, we, everybody now has a voice and fighting for a voice. So now you got all these voices. You got this voice trying to battle that voice. And when this movement try to get a little ground, this movement try to get a ground. And what's happened to the black folks in the midst of all of this fighting to get a voice? We get jaded. So I don't want to paint a lot of pictures of, of, of dismal because we have all kinds of examples of things that are changing at all. I mean, look what happened with the Black Panther. Black folks went crazy. We were so glad to see a positive representation of who we were that we flocked to the movies. Man, we were playing We were playing drums in the, in, in the lobby. We were turning it out. We were taking church groups, kids groups, to see a fictitious movie of a hero. So we're still starving for that same identity. Well, that cool. movie became one of the top three grossing films in the world. Yeah. And I'm talking about other countries who were levitated and saw the same kind of cultural identity. Look at Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry, just about a month ago, this man bought a Confederate military base. Right. He did. And just turned it to the largest film studio, sound studio in the United States. So while we're talking about how jaded we are, how kids are distracted, there are still people doing fantastic and big things, and we need to start talking about it, and we need to start supporting it one way or another, because it's going to happen whether you participate or not. Art will always prevail through all of this distraction. It's just a matter of whether you make it part of your culture or not, whether you see it as being important. And if you don't see it as being important, no problem. It's, it's okay. It's a world enough big enough where you can be in that position. But there's a lot of other folks that really protect the art. They feel for the art. They support the art. Thank God for those people because those are the people that have kept me um, engaged for the last 47, 57 years. And I will continue to find folks that will do that. Yeah. And I will survive regardless of whether people wake up or not. And I think with your um, 
age 90, and remember, you're 40 right now, <laughs> but at the age of 90, you're still going to be doing this. Well, put it this way. Artists can die with their pencils and paintbrushes in their hands. So it's not a matter of my longevity. I, I'm not even concerned about my longevity. As a matter of fact, I was diagnosed with cancer three years ago. Most people don't even know it. It's not going to stop me from doing what I need to do. But I'm also working now on building legacy, which is why I'm doing this film, The Golden Age of African American Art. Because for once, I want to try to tell the story that many of my peers never had a chance to tell. And if I die right after that happens, I'm complete. I'm going to be looking forward to seeing that documentary. Is it going to be available on um, uh, broadcast, or is this something that will be shown in the theaters? Well, you know, the thing is, right now, in this world of content, and that's what we are, podcasts are content, but right now, films, documentaries are content, too. you got places, people like Netflix, and all these other agencies that are providing programming that are looking for that. And that's who we're marketing to. This is not going to just become a YouTube special. No, we're shooting for the big boys. So look out for it. Listen out for it. If you want to find the pre-trailer that we released to it, go to YouTube and simply type in the Golden Age of African American Art, and you will see the pre-trailer that was prepared for this documentary. Awesome. Got it. So we'll check it out, and I'm sure that our listeners will as well. With that, Pancho, we know that you're very busy. We definitely thank you for taking the time out. Yes, to thank talk you with very us. much. Well, it's been my pleasure whenever we're starting to share. I like what you guys are doing. Continue engaging folks and starting dialogue. That's what this is all about. Um, folks are listening. People are looking for information. Uh, all my advice is that we still need to participate in other ways. We need to volunteer more. We need to walk into places more. We need to kick the door and go look around. You can't get everything off of Amazon. Right. You just got to get out there and you got to touch, you got to feel, you got to smell some stuff. With that, I think that's a perfect ending to part, part one of our talking with the great Larry Poncho Brown. Yes, we will definitely um, reconnect with you when the documentary comes out and talk about that fantastic. in detail so how's that that sounds fantastic I'm, I'm excited for it. we're going to be moving into that uh editing that this year it's going to be released in 2020 so hey look out for it get it 2020 look out for it. yeah we'll look forward <laughs> to it and um from what i've seen already it's going to be powerful all right thanks Thank again you. Thanks again, Pancho, and um, you're quite welcome. Continued success in your endeavors, and we will definitely uh, keep in touch. Talk with Sounds you fantastic. Y'all keep up the good work too. Now, comments. Send your feedback to this and that at aboutgreatercincinnati.com. Another edition of this and that has come to an end. It has indeed. It is now being wrapped up and put into the can, ready for distribution. I love these Living Your Passion segments. Very big thank you to Larry Poncho Brown for man. taking the time out to talk to us. Yes. Because he is a very, <laughs> people just don't very know. busy man. Yes, people say that about folks always very busy. No, he is very busy. So he's always, always, always got his fingers in like a gazillion different things. But he's living his passion, so. Absolutely, as he made very clear. What, what would you expect? Yes. Don't forget, 
November 5th, 2019 is what, David? It's election day. Yes, it's election day. Although there may be early voting in your state. So Correct. So you can vote probably right now. Correct. But if for some reason you don't do early voting, remember November 5th is your last day to vote for the um, upcoming local elections, ballot issues, uh, statewide representatives that will be on the ballot for 2019. And again, that date is November 5th. So make sure you arm yourself with the knowledge and go vote. So with that, again, thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. Remember to share it with others. Replay it several times because you never know what you might hear the second or third time or fourth that you didn't hear the first time. And and for those of you who are subscribing to the podcast via the various um, apps and streaming services out there like Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, etc., take 10 seconds to give us a rating, 5 out of 5 stars, quick review, suggestions, etc., and or send us email at thisandthat at aboutgreatercincinnati.com. We love hearing from folks, and we really do read every comment, every email, and we send you know responses back. We've made show tweaks and suggestions based off of what our listeners have said. Isn't that right, Brenda? Well, we may not send comments back to everybody. But um, we do, we do do read read them. Yes, Yes. we do read the messages. So keep them coming, folks. And until the next time, all the best. Peace out. Bye, folks. You have been listening to This and That, a podcast collaboration about some of everything about anything. This has been hosted by David and Brenda and is presented by AboutGreaterCincinnati.com Music by Poddington Bear Please subscribe to our podcast so that you can stay up to date about future episodes. If you have any comments or suggestions about this episode, future episodes, interested in sponsorship and or advertising, please email us at thisandthat at aboutgreatercincinnati.com. All rights reserved. Thank you and all the best.